This is a teaching message from Church of the Living Water of Austin. I am continuing on my portion on the purpose of the family. Um, so I'm going to do a quick review. Just come with me today. It's going to be quick on the review because we've got some places we have to get. Um, we've been talking about the lust of the flesh, and I'm going to try to cover at least five of them today. Um, if not, you know, we'll, we'll roll with it. But just come with me on this quick review. All right, so we're talking about the purpose of the family, and we found out that purpose is the intended position. So what we're looking at is God's intended position for the family. We've learned over the past few weeks from Minister Martin and Minister Stinson, we've learned that the call of the family is to produce spiritually and emotionally established believers who in turn get God's redemptive work done in the earth. We said in the family that the husband and the wife must take on God's purpose as their ministry. They have to chase after it diligently. We said that every part of the family, from the parents to the children, they have to be fruitful. So we had to give a little definition of fruitful because it does say in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. So let's we had to give a definition of fruitful, and we said fruitful means that we must cons- constantly see God's purpose and persistently live every moment of our life with his purpose in mind. That's how we are to be fruitful. So we have to get a clear understanding of God's purpose for us so we can be fruitful. And so just a quick review, you know, Minister Stinson touched on, and we're talking about the purpose of the family. Her point that she touched on and expounded on was to reflect the image of God in character and structure. And my point is to conduct to operate government for the Lord as his stewards, or his representatives on the earth. And I told you we could all just put to subdue and have dominion. And if you haven't got there already, we are going to start back in Genesis chapter 1. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Let's do a quick review. And I'm going to read verses 26 through 28. And it says, And God says, Let us make man in our image. And it was, it was crucial that we noted it, that God said, Let us make man, because all part of the Godhead has something to do in the creation of man. We said it was God the Father who gave the Son and sent the Son from the foundation of the world. And the Son who came and gave his life and created the church. And then the Spirit who now comes and fills the heart of his bride, us, the church, with the Spirit. So that's the Trinity working all in one. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So we see from these verses here, it's God's intention for mankind to have dominion over all the rest of his creation. We have to bring everything into his harmony, into his purpose. And that's God's intention for mankind. Because remember, we're, we're God's unique creation. There's no other creation on this earth that's been made and imparted with the Spirit of God. No other. We're God's unique creation, and he's given us the command to have dominion and to subdue over all the rest of creation. Because everything else, they're not capable of serving God. They're fleshly creatures. They're not capable of fearing them. They're not capable of serving them. They don't have an intelligent, given spirit to communicate with God by. They can only communicate by their flesh. We can communicate by spirit, so we are to communicate to them God's purpose. We are to to subdue and have dominion over them with God's purpose. And so we saw, we looked at those two words, those two commands, subdue. We wanted to get a clear understanding of what that means. And we went back to the the original word of it, you know, in Hebrew. And the reason I do these things, because you're going to see some some Greek and Hebrew words today, is because a lot of these words are used all over the Bible, but you have to put them in context. 
You have to get the correct definition. Otherwise, you could be, you could be spewing out something that is not true. You have, to, you have to do your due diligence. So, subdue. And we said that Hebrew word is kabash. And it meant to bring into subjection. To keep under or to make subservient. To enslave or to force submission. Or to take control of a hostile country. And that's what it meant in the context of, of Genesis. And then we also said that dominion there, which is the Hebrew word rada, is a royal term. As in a dominating rule or a king or mastery to rule, to govern, or to have lordship. And so we got to the point where we, we realized that dominion was given to us so we can set in order all of God's creation, like we said. But we also said that it first starts with us. We said that we are little worlds created by God. And though our flesh, like the fleshy creatures of this earth, doesn't communicate with God, our spirit does. So our spirit, in turn, is to subdue and have dominion over that hostile nation of our flesh. I'll make sure we got there. And we, we did reference, I want to mention it again, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, To mortify those members of your flesh, that mortify word is a synonym to subdue. So that's what I mean when you've got to do your due diligence, because God, He puts it all over the Bible. He, gets, he puts it there for you to connect it, so that you can connect that knowledge and be enlightened with, by the Spirit. So, it means to subdue our flesh. And then we saw that after God gave this command to Adam, Adam began it, but he couldn't do it by himself. He needed to help me. So he went to Genesis chapter 2, and like we said, we saw it was too much for him to do alone, and God said, you need a helper. But God already knew this. We saw back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it said, God created male and female. So he, was already, he already had a purpose, right? So we see that the man needed, man needed a woman to help him do this. And so she, God, God created a woman from his rib, not his head to be above him, not his feet to be trampled on, but by his heart next to him as his helper. What she lacked, man completed in her, and what man lacked, she completed in him. So a woman was created, and then the institution of marriage and family was established. And I want you to understand this one good point. Man needed her to fulfill God's purpose. He needed the family. Understand that. To fulfill God's order and his purpose. Though God intended husband and wife to be a spiritual, functional unity, walking in integrity, serving God, and keeping his commandments together as one, as a family. So that tells us that the family alone has to impart some godly qualities, some godly characteristics that enable us to rise to our full, our full potential and enable us to subdue our flesh and the earthly creatures of flesh and have dominion. The family is to teach the practical knowledge of God and how to apply this in your everyday life. And we said the world can't do this and we should not expect them to. You know, Minister Martin was talking about the floor of the world. And I kind of summed up the floor of the world in my eyes. It's money, power, respect, and everything in between. That's what the floor of this world is. But God has an answer to this flow. So we're going to go over to Galatians. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read verse 22 through 24 again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And I really could have just said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And look, and everything else in between, right? That's what I could have said, because that's his answer to it. But that just goes to show us, right? Because everybody thinks they know what love is. You know, that just goes to show us that our mind has been skewed by the world and the flow of this world as to what love is. Because we say we have love in our families, but... Our society is the way it is. And I'm going to tell you, it's because of a lack of God's love. So many of these qualities from love and everything else in between are missing from the home today. And this is why society as a whole suffers. And like I, like I said before, we could give examples 
in spades of what's going on in our society. And like the hate crimes and the, you know, the healthcare issues that we have. And there's something new every day. Since the last time I spoke to you, there's been something new that's happened. And it's because of the lack of God's love. And then we had to see, okay, so what is being taught if it's not God's love? Because we need to identify these characteristics in our homes so that we are able to subdue and have dominion. So we're going to go back. To, we're still in Galatians 5. I'm going to read verse 16 through 21. And it says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things ye would. But if ye be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. And this is where we started. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And like I said, that manifest means... You know, if, if you operate in the flesh, no matter, or if you don't operate in the spirit, no matter how hard you try, the flesh is going to develop these characteristics. If you don't choose to walk in the spirit, this is what's going to be developed. And then it will manifest into the downfall of your family. That's the manifestation of these characteristics, the manifestation of the flesh. So let's go into these. We started with adultery and fornication, right? I'm not going to stay on these long because I have a place I want to get, but... I do want to say a few things about some of these again. Like adultery and fornication, I said that's having sex with someone who is not your spouse. End of the line. End of the discussion. No delineation for me. You don't have to say, well, I'm not married. You don't even have to mention that. If it's not your spouse, it's fornication, it's adultery. All of it's the same. God doesn't delineate. Sin is sin. And then we talked about some of the characteristics that were manifested, that, that bring forth, you know, an adulterous or a fornicating heart. And we said it's disloyalty been fake or fraud or phony. And I said that, that fraud or phony, if you didn't know, that's when you have somebody who's able to look you right in the eye and just lie to you. Bald face. That's fraud. That's phony. That's fake. We said they're non-finishers. You know, quitters. They can start stuff but can't finish. That's why we see divorces. That's why we see adulterers that don't finish their marriage. Things like that. Because they're greedy. Quitters. They forsake the proper judgment. They're always willing to compromise. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to go into this extensively anymore uh, than, I, than I have the past couple weeks. If you've missed it, just go to the SoundCloud, you know, because I can't keep doing this, this review. Um, so we went from, but again, you know, it, we said before, it doesn't just have to necessarily be physical sex because there's a heart of a fornicator. There's a heart of an adulterer that's developed. And then that heart of a fornicator and adulterer, you, you'll be disloyal, be fake and phony and fight, not just in your sex life, but in all areas of your life. You'll see it manifest later on in life because of things that have been taught in the home. And the family is just left unfit, can't subdue, cannot have dominion. Then we went on to uncleanness. And we said uncleanness was being impure, immoral, filthy, unnatural. Being impure or unclean in thought and in your deed. And we said that when something is unclean, that means it's spoiled. And we said that uncleanness is also a matter of the heart. We put those two together. Uncleanness is a spoiled heart. That's what being unclean is. And we said that could come from many things. Hanging out with people with a filthy mouth. Having a filthy mouth. Hanging around and participating in unclean things. And we're not going to get into all those things that we did before. But, you know, just a, sli- just a quick example. You know, if you, if you have, let's say your, your CD deck or your, your music deck. Let's say all you listen to is some worldly unclean things. That always talk about, you know, having sex outside of, outside of wetlock. Or drinking or having drugs, doing drugs and things like that. Those things motivate you. I hope you understand that. If that's all you're bathing your mind with and it's never with the word, that's all that's going to come out of you in thought and in deed. You're going to find yourself saying the same things on those tracks, what you want to do to this girl or do to this guy or what you will do or pop this thing or that thing. Or 
You see what I'm saying? Those things will bathe your mind. And you're not, you're not counteracting it with the word and then it's being taught. It's being perpetuated in your families. And then they're just left unfit. Unable to subdue. Unable to have dominion. And then an unclean heart tends to blame someone else for their state in life. Always somebody else's problems. Somebody else's issues. Somebody else got them there. Unable to subdue. Unable to have dominion. Then we went on to lasciviousness. I'm trying to get to a point, so I'm kind of going through these fast. And we said lasciviousness is, this is one whose thoughts and behaviors are driven by sex. It's sexual promiscuity. Unrestrained sexual behavior, unbridled sexual behavior. And we said this is developed because of a lack of validation in the home. You know, this is how, you, you always find someone always seeking approval from somebody by doing something sexual. By wearing something sexual. Things like that. Just giving themselves over freely to sex because they haven't been validated in the home. And it keeps them unable to subdue. Unable to have dominion. You know, this is where, you know, people preach holiness in their home. But them and their children, their wardrobe doesn't show holiness. It shows lasciviousness. And then you allow your children to go in with those lascivious wardrobes into these other functions, like I mentioned, basketball and everything else. And, they are, and they're showing all this, and then you wonder, what turned out the way? Like I said, and I, and I bring up the, the girls in basketball because I saw this often when I grew up in school. They go into basketball, and they come out, and their lives are forever changed. I'm not saying anything is wrong with basketball, but be prayerful. You're willing to give up your family for these little bitty things, right? These menial things that you think are important. Just be careful. Because the enemy is so subtle. You think, oh, they're, they're getting into these things just trying to learn. They're trying to learn discipline. They're trying to learn how to be accountable. They're trying to learn this, this, and that. But they're going in and it's just lasciviousness running, running rampant. Just be prayerful. Some of these things are just not necessary. And you might have to settle those things in your mind. That means you have to know your family. Are they capable of handling themselves in these situations? And let me tell you about your children. No. That helps you. So if you're putting them in these things, you have to be real careful. You have to be real watchful. You've got to start making it to the games. You've got to be waiting up at practice for them. You've got to do stuff like, you have to do your due diligence. This is your family. Or just leave them unable to subdue, unable to have dominion, unable to be God's representatives on the earth. Then we went on to idolatry. And that's where we started last time. We said idolatry, we read from Colossians 3 and verse 5, is covetousness. It's the worship of an idol or something or someone that is not God. Putting something or someone before God in your heart. And we went to Isaiah chapter 42 and we read a little, or 44, I'm sorry, we read a little about idolatry. I hope you went back and meditated on that as well because it was so good to me. But it's so funny to me because what happens with idolatry is the very thing that God commands us in Genesis to subdue and have dominion over, we start to worship. Right? We, start, we looked at Exodus. We talked about in Exodus how the children of Israel, they built a, a, molten, a golden calf. But God said in Genesis, have dominion over the cattle, right? But we, they built a golden calf and began to worship it instead of worshiping the Creator. And like I said, it's not always easy to see, you know, what's, your, what's an idol in your life. But I gave you an example. If you look back over the week, you know, and start to consider things and weigh things out and, you know, look and catalog your time, I said, well, who, what gets your most time? Are you always in front of yourself, you know, like on Facebook, Twitter, all these other things? Are you always about you? Because you could be that golden calf. You could be that idol that you're showing in your house. And then you wonder why your children are following in those footsteps. 
And and just so you know, when you start thinking of yourself as an idol, all those other things, all those other manifestations of flesh start playing too. So you start taking pictures of yourself, but then you start showing your lasciviousness in the pictures, right? So you're like, okay, well, let me show a little bit of my thigh too in this picture. Let me unbutton this. Let me do that. See, these lusts of the flesh, it's not just one. See, you think, oh, I can get over that one. Well, the devil's coming at you with all of them. And you force your children to, to get in these extracurricular activities and you, get, you go there and you give them your all because they're your idols. But you can't, you, you won't let them do the things of God. And if you do, it's haphazardly. They're always late. Or they don't come at all. You have an idol in your life. And you need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you so you can uproot it. So you can be His representatives. So you can subdue. So you can have dominion in your families and in the, over the earth. You gotta settle these things in your mind. Then we went on to witchcraft. I'm almost where we need to be. And I said witchcraft was so interesting to me. Because it came from the Greek word pharmakeia. And that's the Greek word for medicines or drugs that inhibits a person's personality or changes their behavior. And we would call them mind altering drugs, right? It's where we get our word pharmaceutical from or pharmacy from. And then this word is used, especially in this context, is used in connection with sorcery, magic. It's, it's witchcraft. But I want to know why, we, we had to figure out why did Paul use this word witchcraft to depict the work of the flesh, right? So we, we went into this and we went back into those times because Paul, he was in, he was, when he wrote this, he was in the ancient Roman times. And what happened is they had these pagan or heathen worshipers, right? And they would go to these pagan or heathen temples to, to address their issues, their stresses, their problems. And what these pagan priests would do was they'd give them little bitty things just to, to appease it for a moment. You know, instant gratification. Here, take this drug, mix it in here with this wine, go home, you'll feel better. And sure enough, these people would take it, they would do these drugs, they would do these hallucinogens, and they'd feel fine for a little bit. And then their problem would come back, and it would come back even worse, because now you have a, you're addicted to something, too. You have a, another issue. And then they go right back to these pagan temples, looking for more relief for their stresses, more relief for their issues. Then it's a vicious cycle. So we, we, had to, we had to bring it into our day and look what our pagan temples are from today. And I gave some examples, like our liquor stores. I said our dope boys, you know, where we go get our fixes and handle our stresses. Uh, you know, and, and I thought about it too more and more during my study time. You know, some of our convenience stores can be this way because we go spend dollar after dollar just to get a packet of cigarettes. I'm talking about I need to relieve my stress. It all boils down to the your high priest, your high pagan priest, and that's your flesh. That's the priest that you that's telling you, hey, you can do this, and you can you can appease appease what's going on, even though it's temporary. They'll act like it's, it'll it'll make you want to believe that it's going to be for a while. You can you can appease this for a little bit, and then it'll come back, and the flesh tell you, well, you know what you got to do, you got to go appease it again. That's witchcraft. That's working witchcraft on yourself, and your family's learning this. I want you to know that. And then, I, you know, I do want to say this, you know, because I, I, I said that some of y'all's local pharmacies could be your, you know, your, your drug man. Let, let me clear it up again for you one more time. I'm not a doctor. And you should be faithful to anything your doctor prescribes you. But don't let your flesh tell you that you can keep covering up your problems with these temporary solutions. That's my whole point. Because if you let your flesh tell you that, guess what? You've just been working witchcraft on yourself. That's what witchcraft is. It's people who refuse to look at themselves and find out what they need to change. 
And then not only that, because of that refusal, they develop dependencies on other things that will never help them change. It just keeps them right in what they're in. And we said, understand this, your, hate flesh, your flesh hates confrontations. It hates to look into the mirror and see the truth, because if it does look into the mirror and see the truth, then it knows it has to change itself. And we all know that. If we look in the mirror every day and see the truth, we all know there's some change that needs to be done. And if you haven't come to that realization, you may be working witchcraft on yourself. Maybe working witchcraft in your family. We went into some other, uh, other things of witchcraft, like manipulation and things like that, that could be in sex used as witchcraft and things like that. We're not going to go through, through all that again. But the main thing I want you to know is that, you know, the flesh wants to run and hide. It doesn't want you to deal with the vital issues. What the flesh wants you to do, and I'm going to say this again, I said it last week, is it wants you to learn how to cope. It doesn't want you to learn how to live. It doesn't want you to learn how to live on purpose. It just wants you to get by. That's all the flesh wants you to do. It wants to leave you unfit to subdue and have dominion. So now we're going to move on. We're going to move on to some of the new information, and we're going to start here. So, now the works of the, man, the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, and I'm going to go to hatred today. Now this word hate is from the Greek word extra. That's E-C-H-T-H-R-A. Extra. E-C-H-T-H-R-A. And this word expresses the idea of an intense hostility or enmity. And y'all have heard that word in the Bible, enmity, right? It's one, enmity the one feels towards someone else or something. And it's often used to picture enemies like in military conflicts. Because they want you to see how bad this hostility has gotten, how bad this animosity has gotten. For example, this, this very word ektra is used in the Bible in Luke chapter 23. And it's, what it's doing, it, in, in Luke 23 it talks about a hatred that existed between, uh, between Herod and Pilate. And he used that word enmity there. And I looked up that word enmity and it was ektra. The same thing as hatred. Because it wanted, to show the, it wanted to show the enmity between those two, how animosity would have built up between those two, how deep-rooted those issues were between those two, and how hate built up in this, so how bitter they were. And this is all before, because they did become friends later, but that's, you just got to do your research on Herod and Pilate, and you'll see the hate that they had for each other. They were bitter, they were sour, they were hardened enemies. They wanted each other dead. They despised one another. And that, that was all expressed in that word, ektra. So this depicts people who can't get along with each other. Fiercely opposed to each other. They even get antagonistic or aggressive with each other. Every time they see each other. Because they have hate in their heart. They're harsh with one another. So how do these resentments and grievances and so on start? And it's simple. It's the same thing as the other manifestations of the flesh. There's a lack of validation. There's a lack of understanding of who you are in Christ. See, because hatred, it doesn't start as hatred. So in my study time, there's one thing that kept coming up that I kept seeing that, starts, that, that started off and then ended up in hatred, and that was fear. So let's give some examples of how hatred is learned. Because what it is, is it's a, a seed is sown, a seed of fear is sown. So let's say, let's say you have a fear of something, right? Or, or, or something different. Let's say you grew up different, you have a different color, you don't fully understand someone, so you say things are like, you say things like, you know what, they like chicken. Oh, they, all those people, they, they like drums. They like, they like musical people. You know. Oh, all those type of people can't drive. 
All of them are racist. All those men are dogs. All those women are hoes. Generalizing, condemning statements out of fear. And what you don't get is you're teaching, you're sowing a seed of hatred. And if it's undressed, it will manifest the hatred. Fear of humiliation. Let's say, for example, a father doesn't want their child to become a homosexual. Or any parent, I said a father, but a parent doesn't want their child to become a homosexual. Because you don't want to be humiliated. So you use words in your house like faggot. You know, hateful words. And planting the seeds inside of them. And they grow up. And then you wonder why you have hate crimes. But you planted that seed of fear in them. And use words like that in your house. And think that you're not teaching. Fear of betrayal. You say things like, uh, you know, you come to church and you say, I'm not giving that man my money. First off, it has nothing to do with the man. But because you've been swindled before by somebody else out in the world, you're so afraid to trust that you hate the church and the laws of God. Because cause God says you have, to give, you have to give. And not only give, you need to be a cheerful giver. You need to tithe. But our fear is teaching us hate. And it's been perpetuated onto our children. Because they hear those things when you say them at home. I'm not giving that church my money. I'm not giving that man my money. Fear of betrayal. Then there's also, this is interesting to me, there's a fear of who you're supposed to be. Let's just look at a man who sleeps around, right? Let's call it what it is, a whoremonger. Let's say he's a believer and he knows he shouldn't do these things, but he continues to do it. And it's all because of a fear of what God's called you to be. Fear of what other people will think about what, you, about what you are, even though God has called you to be that. So because you're afraid of being what God called you to be, you just submit your body to sin. Over and over. Developing a cycle. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself resenting the opposite sex. Because you think that's what's keeping you in that cycle. So you continue to do it. You continue to, to submit yourself to these sexual cycles of sin, but then you're also like, man, I can't stand these girls. I can't trust her. See how, she, how quickly she gave it to me? But it's you who's perpetuating that cycle. Let them deal with them, but you need to deal with you. You're just afraid of who you're supposed to be. See, a, a person who is, who's operating out of hatred, not of fear, they'll say stuff like, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not bad as this person. Look at them and look at their faults. Instead of seeing that resentment and hostility inside of you. And letting that hatred fester. Letting it grow. Making you a harsh person. Not approachable by anybody. Then we have the fear of correction. So have you ever gotten corrected by anybody like your pastor? And then went home and then voiced your opinion to your family. I can't stand him. I can't stand her. You can't tell me about my family. Now, even though you may not hate that person, did you know a seed of hatred was just sown? Because correction, listen, as a believer, you're going to get correction all the days of your life. But a, a, a guarded heart, one that has fear of correction, as soon as they hear it, that's, that's going to be their response. 
They can't tell me nothing about my family. They need to correct their own. So do you. Or we're all correcting. Let me, get, let me help you get that clear. In Pastor Hill's house, there was corrections every day. Whether we listened to it or not, there was correction. Because remember, it's still your choice. See, fear brings resentment and anger. And left unchecked, it's going to turn into hatred. And when you say these things in front of your children, you know, they may not understand the circumstances of, of your anger or your resentment, but they do understand hatred. They know that word. That's a four-letter word that I learned early in school. They do understand what hatred is. Know this. What you love and what you hate, more than likely your children are going to love and hate it too. Because you're their teacher. Because God set it up that way. So if you see them hating certain things in life, you're like, where did they get that from? Start with your, you're the little world God created. You're supposed to be able to subdue and submit and have dominion. But what does God say about fear? He said there's no fear in love. What did we say was the answer to it all? The fruit of the Spirit is love. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Let's go there real quick. I think that's First John 4. I want to read that. I think that's verse 18. Yes. Verse 18, and I'm going to read all the way through 21. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he, has not, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that we who loveth God also, God love his brother also. So it tells you right there. The God, look, God wants you to overcome the hatred in your heart. If you have a spirit of hatred, if you have fear in your heart too, God wants you to overcome that. He's given us his spirit to have dominion, to subdue these fleshly things the hostile nation of your flesh so let me just sum up hatred because I need to keep moving here this is what hatred is in this context hatred is the fear of understanding the truth because the truth will have you deal with yourself first So I'm going to help you out today. If you hate your family, then be fearful. Don't keep pressing to receive the truth so that you can get your correction, so that you can change, so that your family can live on purpose and just reap corruption. So the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And the next one is variance. And Paul lists this as a work of the flesh. And it's very interesting, interesting to me. So the Greek word for variance is eris. E-R-I-S. And this is used in a political context. It describes political parties that have different platforms or different agendas. See, in a political system, people tend to align themselves with people of their like opinions. 
Then once they come together, they discuss their issues, they concur about, the, about their political views, then they proceed to, proceed to build a platform which they can promote their own agenda. Once the agenda is decided on and the competition starts, it's game on. Anything goes. When I say game on, I mean it's a fight. And you go, and I say fight because you're going to see low blows. You're going to see haymakers. You're going to see cussing. You're going to see scratching. You're going to see false representations of people. You're going to see people tell lies and repeat them as facts. And listen, when I'm saying these things, think of them, think of them in our government today, but think of also in the church. Think of them in your homes. Apply them across the board. You're going to see all these things. And as crazy as this sounds for people who are running for public office to do these things, it's been this way for a long time. It's been this way since the Bible. That's why it's in the Bible. Variance. Variance is disagreement. The, the opposite of agreement. We're talking about oneness. You got variance, you can't be in oneness. The total opposite of agreement. It's the spirit of contentious debate. I gotta prove my point my point no matter what the cost. Like my family. So when Paul was writing it here, you know, the word heiress, he's he's trying to show us how our flesh erupts and divides families, destroys relationships, divides churches. It pulls people who once stood side by side apart. That's what variance does. Families. The ones stood side by side, apart. And that's the thing. Those who are offended, they're usually drawn to other people that are offended. So then they come together, you know, like, like the political parties do, and they discuss their agenda together. And then they start discussing their feelings and realize, oh, we feel the same way. And then they're like, well, everybody, and once you get two or three people together thinking the wrong way, they're thinking, oh, well, everybody else is wrong, and it's us that's right. That's variance. For example, you know, because I said it's people who come together, they discuss their own opinion, and they, they build their agenda. Let's say, let's take a brother. Let's say he's at home watching the game with a close buddy. But it's someone who's offended like you. And you let certain things that you say hang all out. Let's not even talk about offended. Let's say it's a married couple. Let's say a guy goes out with his boys and they're talking about their women and their wives and how, you know, I don't like how she does this. I don't like how she does that. And they come together like, I don't like it all together. And you discussing your family stuff with your little group of buddies who got the same opinion as you. But don't have this opinion. And then you're taking it back home. Or you got your girls too. Don't, I'm not going to leave y'all out. You know, meeting with your girls together. Talking about how, how much of a nobody is and nothing he is, this, this, and that. Together. See, that, that word heiress, it depicts a mean spirit. I'm looking for people with my mind so I can show you, look, we right. No matter the cost. This is exactly why church splits occur. Family splits occur. 
And the funny part about it is most of these issues aren't even that important. But because of your variance, and because you have to prove that point, you push it to the limit. And it costs you your family. See, that's just the thing about the flesh. You would rather blow these small things out of proportion. You would rather have somebody feel his pain. Variance is the very essence of divorce. Always being contentious in your house about nothing. Always have something to say. Can't, you can't agree on the smallest thing. You come get, being mad about the way the toilet paper roll is on the spool. Little things like that. You know, for, for those who are dealing with variants, I'm going to tell you like the quickest way that you can start working on that is just shut up and be quiet. Even if you're right. Oh, that's a tough thing. That's a real tough thing. But some, listen, someone has to grow up. Someone has to stop perpetuating the cycles. You can use, you know, your past and your childhood as long as you want to as an excuse, but you're getting truth today. Somebody has to accept it. Well, when we do things like that, when we argue, we don't do it in front of our children. When we have it, when we come, when we do, they don't see it. Let me tell you something. I don't live with you, and when you come in here, I can see what happened at your house, your house already. It's all over your face. And you're telling me that the ones that live with you can't see it. They can't feel the tension in the air riding the church with you. Always have something to say. Can't keep your mouth shut. And then wonder why later on when your children, you know, get older, they have a, a, a snappy mouth. So you want to just smack them in the mouth. You're like, where'd you learn that from? Well... Look in the mirror first. Have you been fit to subdue and have dominion? So the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And next up is emulations. And I'm going to try to go through this quickly because I need to get to a certain place. So, emulations. This word is not really used in our contemporary world today. We do get our word emulate from it, but it's it's a different meaning here. There's a part of it in there, but we're going to get to it. Emulations. This comes from the Greek word zelos. Z-E-L-O-S. And this often denotes enthusiasm, fervor, passion, or devotion, or an eagerness to achieve something. That's where we get our word zeal from. But in a negative sense, this shows a person who's upset because someone else achieved more or received more than they have. This person, therefore, is jealous. Envious. I like that word envious because that's, that's a, a manifestation of the flesh too. Envyings. I like that word envious. Resentful. Filled with ill will for the person who got what they wanted. And it leaves that person who didn't get what they wanted, it leaves them irritated. Mad. Irate. Annoyed. Provoked. In a bad way. 
this person you would call today a hater. That's what I call them. You a hater. <laughs> Can't rejoice with another person just because they they own petty jealousies. I'm gonna give you an example of of zealous in action. Let's go to Acts chapter seven real quick. And I'm going to read just one verse. Verse 9. And it says, And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with them. Now the patriarchs they're talking about are Joseph's brother. And it's so interesting because it says, They were moved with envy. And I looked up that specific phrase, and you know what came up? Zelos. Being moved with envy. They were irate. They were irritated. Provoked to doing something against their brother Joseph. Because they were moved with envy. Emulations. You know, after seeing him richly rewarded over and over again by his father, they couldn't bear it any longer. Rather than rejoice with him, they sold him into slavery. And... Like I said, that word emulation just talks about a, a zeal or a fervor to do it. They sold them into slavery and they were ready to do it. They had a zeal about doing that. They were fed up. See, that word zealous, envy, jealousy, it's such a strong force that it'll move you into action. Like I said, they were moved with envy. And nine times out of ten, when it moves you, you're going to do something hurtful. I mean hurtful. Things you're going to regret later. Say things that you're going to regret later. Let me say this in passing. You have to be careful, you know, what you teach or you show in your home. Because this can cause your children to turn towards this, lean toward this. This is how brothers and sisters can end up hating each other for the rest of their lives. As parents, you have to make sure you don't have any favorites. You have to make sure that they all see the love of God. Because you can nurture those characteristics of, of zealous. You've got to be so careful. Remember, God's purpose and desire for us is to do and have dominion. You can't allow emulations or jealousy to work inside you. Let's move on to, let's move on to wrath. The works of the flesh are manifest which are these, and we're going to go to wrath. Now, wrath is the Greek word thumos. T-H-U-M-O-S. And this is used throughout the New Testament. And it's, it's used to show a person who is boiling over the top with anger. And when I say boiling, you know, usually this person, that means this person tries to restrain their anger and push it down. And they do. But when you push it down, you never deal with the original issue, so it just sits inside. It boils up. It festers. It gains momentum because you don't want to deal with it. And so, it'll flare up. And when it does, it'll hit. And when it hits, it's, almost, it's, like, a, it's like a natural, it's like a tornado. It hits and it hits hard and it destroys everything in the past. It, fly, it flings cars around, people around, houses around, everything in its wake. That's what wrath does.
Do y'all know anybody like that? That when they pop off, it's over? It's no, it's no restraining them? That's wrath. So we have to see, you know, what's the characteristics of this? Because you want to push stuff down so it doesn't, so you don't just pop off when it happens. But what happens? What is that pushing down? And so God said, well, you know, this is, this is, this is what develops wrath. Procrastination. And we all know what procrastination is, right? It's a hesitation, a postponement, putting something off. But here's my definition that I live off of of procrastination. It's the art or strategy of planned self-hindrance. It's the art or strategy of planned self-hindrance. Because procrastination is usually planned. When you know you have something to do and you keep putting it off. That's planned self-hindrance. So here's the process of wrath. So let's say people get hurt or offended or upset, and then rather than take it to God right there and deal with it there, they choose instead just to meditate on how they feel about it. Let it boil up on the inside. And the longer you think about it, and we can attest to it, when you start thinking and festering on these things, you get upset. You get high. You're ready to pop off. And you'd be by yourself thinking about it. You're ready to pop off. And then you let it calm down. You push it back down. You're like, I can't get like that. I can't pop off. But you never deal with the issue. And you think, you know, if I, if I don't do something quick right now to restrain myself, it's going to get ugly. Well, it can get ugly. But it's going to be even uglier when you push it back down and let it boil to the surface. I, you know, when I was studying this, what came to mind, I don't know if y'all remember this, my, my mother did a message years and years ago about the trash masher. Y'all remember the trash masher? And you push things down and don't deal with it, push it down, and then one day that thing's going to break and bust open. And there's going to be damage everywhere. Let me, let me say this and write this down. Procrastination is the gateway to wrath. And just a side note, the way to beat it is preparation and discipline. And I can go on about that all day, but just a side note, preparation and discipline. But that word thumos, wrath, it shows the way the flesh tries to deal with our problems rather than confront it head on. See, when whatever happens, happens, the flesh strategically hinders itself. Allowing the issues just to boil and work inside them, deep inside them. And you may think that it's over, but the truth is, those issues are simmering. Waiting for the right moment just to blow up. To bring wrath. You see, you got to understand that even though the flesh is attempting to avoid confrontation, in the end when it corrupts after you're holding it down, it's going to be more hurtful, more painful, and more permanent than ever. Confrontation can be, can be challenging. I know. It can be. But the mature path, deal with the problems when they first occur. Don't let them sit. Don't let them fester. Deal with them when they first happen. So here's what I'm going to say wrath is. What is wrath? It is the route of the flesh to delay issues 
and then to erupt in madness, leaving all types of casualties in your wake. And understand this, because you think of wrath, you think anger. It doesn't have to be anger. It does not have to be anger. For example, let's say you have a substance abuse problem, or a spending problem, or a pornography problem, a time management problem, right? Since children in school, time management is a, is a big thing. A time management problem. And let's say you refuse to deal with these problems, and they boil, and they fester, and they come to a head. How do these things come to a head? Well, substance abuse problem, we know you'll be, become a drug addict. You don't deal with, you know, spending problems, then your houses get foreclosed on. Your cars get repossessed. Don't deal with a pornography problem, you become a sex addict. You don't deal with your time management problem, I'm going to stick with the children on this. You start failing all classes and you have to take classes over again. Because you have a time management. See, I want you to understand about wrath. It's not just anger. You don't, any issue you don't deal with, you're going to face the wrath of that. You don't deal with your sexual issues, you're going to face the wrath of your sexual choices. You don't deal with your spending issues, you're going to face the wrath of your spending problems. And here's the thing about wrath. It affects, like I said, like a tornado, it, it hits everything. It affects more than just one person. It always does. It's not just you being affected. Uh, remember in Galatians 6, just a couple of verses over from Galatians 5, be not, be not deceived, God is not mocked. That which you sow, you shall reap. If you sow to the flesh, that's what you're going to reap. So if you don't deal with your issues, the wrath of that issue of the flesh is going to show up. Uncontrolled, and it's going to affect everybody and everything around you. Unfit. Can't subdue. Can't have dominion. Can't be God's representatives. Now I almost got where I wanted to today, but I didn't get to it, but that's okay. I believe that we should be finishing up next week, and if not, God is faithful. Alright, so amen, and you guys can be dismissed. This has been a teaching message from Church of the Living Water at Austin. For more information about our ministry, please go to our website at livingwateraustin.net.